Let us, let us come and pray. Oh Lord Jesus, uh, we come to you now um, out of our uh, busy weeks and difficult weeks and trying times, Lord, and we come to you now uh, to open up your word and to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. Um, I pray for me that my words um, will be your words and that anything false from me would fall away. Um, we pray, Lord, that this time uh, would be glorifying to you and that would be building up your church as we become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. If I could just get the... Cool. There we go. All right. I'm just going to close that because it's not working. There are very few things that the world hates more than a self-righteous hypocrite. You know the type, someone who looks down their noses at you and pronounces condemnation for your failures, but at the same time their own life is full of sin? Kids are always a great display of what we're really like. How quick are they to point out the flaws of their siblings? Mom, Dad, why do I have to clean my room? So-and-so hasn't cleaned their room. Mom, Dad, so-and-so's still playing that game after you asked them to turn it off. Mom, Dad, so-and-so hit me. Conveniently leaving out the events prior This is something that happens in every family, but sadly, it's not something that we naturally grow out of. It remains with us. Have you ever come home after a long day and everyone seems grumpy? Our first inclination is to ask, what's wrong with everyone? What happened here? But not to look at ourselves and realise how we're treating them. Hypocrisy and self-righteousness is not confined to just how we treat our family members or how they treat us. It's a natural attitude of ours that spills out into every relationship that we have. And it's a particular danger that we, that we can fall into as we think of ourselves as religious people. It's a danger that comes from misunderstanding the Bible and misunderstanding what being a Christian is all about. You see, if we think that the Bible is a book of rules telling us what we should and shouldn't do, and that being a Christian means keeping those rules as best as we can so that God is pleased with us, or if we think that the Bible is a book of heroes, people that we should aspire to be like and to copy, be like Abraham, the man of great faith, be like Samson and be strong for the Lord, or be like David, the slayer of giant. If we think in these ways, we make the Bible to be about us and what we should be doing And if we think this way, we'll quickly fall into the trap of self-righteousness. By nature, we cover our own failures and mistakes. And so we think that being a Christian is all about following God's rules and being like those heroes of the faith. We'll turn a blind eye to our own shortcomings and we'll be tempted to condemn other people for theirs. It's no wonder that the world thinks Christians are self-righteous hypocrites. It's because often we are. But the Bible isn't primarily about us and what we should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. How he has established a perfect, everlasting kingdom and made way for us to be a part of it. 
As we've worked through the Sermon of the Mount, we've seen that Jesus is calling us to something deeper and better. He's inviting us to a life in his kingdom. He has arrived. Jesus is the long-awaited king promised by God. And he said that with his arrival, the kingdom of heaven is coming into the world. And he invites us to be a part of it. He invites us to sit at his feet as his disciples and learn from him a way of living in this fallen and sinful world in a way that corresponds to his coming rule and reign. Being a Christian, a disciple of Christ, means starting to live now in the way that we'll live in Jesus' kingdom forever. Jesus' followers don't just have an external facade of good works that make them look religious and righteous. We aren't throwing on a fake chimney to impress the neighbours. Rather, Jesus wants us to be whole. He wants us to have hearts that are transformed by the Holy Spirit and turned towards God in love, which then overflows into a spring of good works. Being a disciple of Jesus means that our internal heart is seen by the way that we live out our good works. This is what Jesus has been calling true righteousness. So far in his sermon, Jesus has covered lots of heavy imperatives. Don't do this, but do that. Jesus has shown us the high standards that the law demands. Our righteous deeds must be so good that people see them and praise God. Chapter 5, verse 16. Don't be angry, 5.22. Don't lust, 5.28. Honour your spouse, 5.32. Keep your word, 5.37. Don't seek vengeance, 5.39. Love your enemies, 5.44. And be perfect, 5.48. However, when we do these things, when we practice our righteousness, we're not doing it to seek the approval of others, whether by our service or praying or fasting, We don't do it for man, but for the Lord. And last week with Diego, Jesus states that it's foolish to try and work only for earthly things, the temporary things, but he commands us to work for the eternal things of the kingdom, to seek the treasure that is this true righteousness, to keep our eyes on Jesus, the true treasure, to serve our master and our king as we live for the kingdom. Who can stand up to these requirements? We are angry, we lust, we dishonour our loved ones, and we lie, we repay evil for evil, and love only those who would give us something good in return. We are far from perfect. We serve ourselves and build ourselves up. We seek out our own comfort, and we are anxious to fill our earthly, selfish desires. Jesus knows us, and he knows our response to such heavy teachings. Do we say, yes, God, you're right, I'm sorry, please forgive me? Or do we naturally overlook ourselves and instead look at others and see how far short they are and make sure to point out their failings? Our Christian fellowship won't be perfect until Jesus comes back. We'll often sin against each other, and Jesus wants us to consider how we react to each other when that happens. Are we self-righteous hypocrites? Instead, Jesus' true righteousness invites us to be humble towards others. Let's have a look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. John 3.16 was arguably the most famous verse in the Bible in the late 20th century. But I think that has changed. I think for lots of people today, it is judge not. They say this is the central principle of Jesus' teaching, the lens through which they view everything else. You might hear it from a non-Christian if you try and talk to them about sin. They'll say, hang on, you can't judge me. You can't condemn my lifestyle. Jesus says don't judge. And gets wheeled out as like a mic drop at the end of an argument when you talk about sin. Gotcha, you're judging me. Jesus says not to. You're the one disobeying him, not me. The problem is that this is not what Jesus is saying at all. Following that famous verse in John 3.16, Jesus goes on to say that, yes, he came to save the world and not to condemn it, but also that whoever does not believe is condemned already. Make no mistake, everyone, everywhere will be judged by God. We are not God, though. We are not to condemn people. We are not the judge that sits over the law. However, the Bible is full of times where we are called to judge and discern. I have a non-exhaustive list, and I'm not going to go through them all, but if you're interested, come and talk to me about it after the service. These examples from both the Old and the New Testament demonstrate that we are required to use evaluation and discernment to make judgments over a variety of things, including sinful behaviour. But we don't need all of these to make the point today. We only have to keep reading here in this very chapter to see that. We'll get to verse 6 later today, where we see that we need to make judgments about whether people are dogs or swine. Or next time we're in Matthew, we'll visit verse 15, where we'll see we need to judge whether someone is a false preacher, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Judge not doesn't mean you can never make a judgment about whether something is sinful. There is a difference between judgment that is discernment or evaluation and judgment that is condemnation. Instead, in saying judge not, Jesus is calling us to check out what is going in our hearts when we come across someone else's sin. Do we treat them with humility and gentleness and grace? Or are we harsh and presume to condemn them? Because that's how we treat because how we treat other people in their sin, if we stand in judgment over them and condemn them, that uncovers what is going on in our own hearts. And it's our hearts that Jesus is interested in. How we treat other people demonstrates whether or not we've really got the gospel or not. If you withhold forgiveness from people, if you condemn others and presume to sit in judgment over them, it's evidence you haven't really understood the gospel. Jesus says that God will use your own standard of judgment against you. If you presume to take God's place and set yourself up as a judge, as a judge over others, then God will use your own judgments against you. Romans 2 goes into this thought a lot more, and I can't cover it today, so please read it yourself later on. But stop and think, how do you think this would go for you? Francis Schaeffer has a great illustration of what this would look like. Imagine that every little baby born everywhere has an automatic tape recorder hung around their neck. As they grow throughout their life, the tape recorder is activated every time they make a moral judgment against someone. 
Every time they sit in judgment over someone else, every time they bind someone by their own judgment, click, the tape recorder switches on and records that judgment. Look at that night house. They're idolising worldly possessions for sure. Click. Did you hear what they said? They're such a gossip, I can't stand it. Click. I can't believe they insist on doing things their own way. They're so stubborn. Click. And finally comes the day, the great day, when you stand before Jesus as the true judge. Imagine that he just rewound the tape and hit play, and you heard back in your own voice every judgment that you pronounced against someone else, every condemnation, thousands upon thousands of judgments made against others going on for years and years. If that was the standard that God held you to, how would you do? Have no doubt, though, the standard that Jesus holds us to is even much greater than that. But nevertheless, how would you stand up to your own words? Jesus says, with the judgment that you pronounce over others, you will be judged. If you're harsh and unforgiving towards other people's sin, you probably haven't understood the gospel. And he paints a picture for us in verse 3 of how ridiculous it is to judge others without looking at yourself first. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You don't have to be a carpenter's son to get Jesus' point here. Someone with a massive beam in their eye is never going to see clearly to help their brother with the speck of dust in theirs. If you're blind to your own sin, if you've got a plank in your eye and you don't know it, or worse, you're choosing to ignore it, you'll never see clearly in order to help other people. You can't judge rightly if you've got a log in your eye, and you can't judge rightly if you haven't dealt with your sin before God. If you blindly ignore your sin, you won't help. You'll be a self-righteous hypocrite and you'll do more damage than help. And if that's our tendency, Jesus wants us to look inside and have a look at ourselves before going and looking at other people's sins. That's what Jesus says in verse 5. You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Our problem is that we don't look inwards first. We are far too willing to go easy on ourselves and hard on other people. It's easy to gloss over our own sin and highlight the sin of others. And there's great irony in that, isn't there? That usually the most judgmental people are blind to their own failures. When you come across someone who is constantly complaining about the faults of others, they're usually the ones who are the most self-deluded. And if you're sitting here thinking, yeah, that's true. I hope so-and-so is paying attention. I really wish they were here to listen. They're so judgmental. Then listen up. Jesus is talking to you. If you're the sort of person who is quick to notice the failures of others, Jesus says, stop it. You are the one that leads to listen to this. At the same time, Jesus isn't giving us a loophole that we can use to ignore people when they call out our own sin. That self-justifying voice in you will be tempted to say, well, that person who rebuked me, they've got their own sins that they're not dealing with. Why should I listen to them? 
The Bible says you are a fool if you refuse to listen to correction. Jesus is not giving you a loophole to escape through. Instead, it's an invitation for us to look at our own hearts and see if we're harboring that self-righteous judgmental attitude in the way that we relate to other people. Now, if you're not sure whether you are that sort of person who's quick to condemn others and blind to your own sin, ask someone who you trust, someone who knows you, who isn't just going to flatter you, and be prepared for an answer that you don't like. And if you are like that, then Jesus gives us the solution here. He invites us to a better way. It means taking the plank out of our own eye to assess ourselves not to our standards, but to the standard of true righteousness that Jesus has laid out for us. Dealing with your own sin before God, asking the Holy Spirit to point out our blind spots, and coming before God in repentance and humility, confessing your sins to him and receiving the mercy and grace of Jesus. And then extending that same grace and mercy to others in the way that you treat them. When we have a true perspective of our own sinfulness and that's been forgiven on the cross, it'll make us quick to repent, quick to forgive, to think the best of others, quick to overlook their faults and to be humble ourselves and to put others first. Isn't it nicer to be around people like that? Now, there is a place for confronting sin in each other's lives. Jesus tells us to take the splinter out of our brother's eye. We are to address sin, not to put them down in order to make ourselves feel better, not as a projection of our own self-righteousness, but we should be confronting sin. But confronting each other must be about love, love for them, and it is a loving thing to do. Though it will often be hard, it is loving to not leave them in their sinful ways, but to point them to Jesus, to show them the gospel. But it starts with turning our gaze inwards, examining ourselves first and seeing our sin in our lives, coming to Jesus for help and forgiveness. And only then, says Jesus, we'll be able to help others. When we've seen our sin and brought it to Jesus, we'll be able to deal with others. And we'll treat them with gentleness and mercy and grace, seeking to restore them rather than condemn them, because that's how Jesus has dealt with us. As we alluded to earlier, this takes discernment. If we look at verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. This is a strange verse if it is taken by itself, but never read a Bible verse. Read it in context and will help clear it up. We should be discerning about how we share the gospel how we point out their sin and point them to the saving work of Jesus. As we deal graciously with each other, humbly confessing our own sin and depending upon Jesus' grace and confronting sin in others' lives in a merciful way, at the same time, we're not to be naive. It is futile to try and correct someone who will not receive it. There are echoes here later in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom is like the precious pearl. Jesus here is saying that the disciples shouldn't waste their times wrangling with the Jews who will refuse to believe in the kingdom that has arrived with Jesus. 
Those Jews will reject the message and turn on the disciples and persecute them. And so the disciples should wipe the dust off their feet and move on. Jesus is saying that we should expect people to reject the gospel too. When we tell people that Jesus is king and that he offers forgiveness and grace, they will reject the message. They may even turn around and attack you. They may use your gentleness and willingness to forgive as an opportunity to take advantage of you. Jesus is saying that to keep putting the gospel before these unrepentant people is like giving what is holy to dogs or throwing pearls before pigs. And now it's not that we shouldn't show grace. We should extend grace and forgiveness. We should love our enemies, like Jesus told us to do in chapter 5. But we should be discerning about how we share the precious message of the gospel with those who reject it and throw it in our face. There is a time and place discerned with wisdom where we pull back from relationship and fellowship with these people. Sometimes when people run away, we need to let them go. And this, this is hard. To see a friend or a family member reject the truth of the gospel, it is hard. We should still pray for them, commit them to the Lord, for God to soften their hearts through the message of the gospel. And maybe there comes a time where we leave that work to God through other people, trusting that God can and will draw his lost sheep to himself in his timing. The true righteousness that Jesus invites us to put on is humbling, humble towards others, acknowledging our own sin and extending grace, but it is still always discerning. And this humility that is part of the true righteousness that Jesus invites us to also affects the way that we relate to God as our Father. We should be humble and gracious towards each other, and we should humbly be dependent upon God. You see, when we reflect rightly on our own sinfulness and God's righteousness, we realise that we're entirely dependent upon him. We depend on Jesus to work in us, to create in us the true righteousness that Jesus' kingdom demands. We can't do it ourselves. We can't change our own hearts. We need God to work in us by his spirit. Jesus encourages us to express our need for God and our dependence upon him by asking for help and provision. And we can be confident that when we do ask, that God will answer. It's what he tells us in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For anyone who receives, for anyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Asking, seeking, knocking. These are three pictures of coming to God in prayer. Asking for him to meet our needs. Seeking his kingdom and its righteousness knocking on the door with our needs. And this invitation comes with a guarantee from Jesus that should fill us with confidence to pray. If we ask, it will be given to us. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. Everyone who comes to God in humble, dependent faith is guaranteed that God will hear and will answer. Everyone who asks, seeks and knocks will receive what they need. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying that we get everything that we ask for in prayer. Prayer isn't a blank check. Jesus isn't talking about the things we want or the things we think we need. This is about what is behind the door that we cannot open, the righteousness that we are unable to obtain on our own. This is about seeking the kingdom. And the promise is this, that if we seek first the kingdom, we will find it. If we ask for his help in living out this kingdom righteousness, he, this help will be given to us. God will give us everything that we need to live how he wants us to. It might not what we think we need. It won't be health and wealth or luxury and comfort. But he will give us what we actually need. And we see here that there isn't an entrance exam. There's no theological assessment. We don't have to pay a door fee or pay a donation to the church for it to be opened. All we need to do is to come to him and ask. If we ask him, he will give it. And we know this because he has already given us Jesus. Jesus is the most valuable treasure. If we seek him, we will find him. And it goes beyond that, as we saw last week. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, food, clothing, the things that God knows that we really need, all these things will be provided for you. And you can be sure of that because God is our father and he's a good father. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus says that we can be confident that God will give us what we need. Because he's our Father. The reason that fathers love to give good gifts to their children is because fatherhood is a reflection of what God is like. Jesus isn't looking at dads and saying, dads, he isn't looking at what dads are like and saying God is like that. Instead, he's saying God is the true father and the goodness that we see in our earthly fathers is something that is derived from what God is like. But God's fatherhood is so far beyond and above ours because Jesus says God is the perfectly good father. Even though my fatherhood is derived from what God is like, I am still sinful. I am not a perfect father, and I will fail my kids. Like your fathers have failed you. My kids might ask me something for when I'm in a bad mood, or when I feel I'm too busy to listen to them. But God isn't like that. There is no sin in him. He's perfectly good, and he wants us to give us good things. He's the God of the universe. He can give us whatever we need. He's never busy to listen. Nothing is too small to come to him. And he delights in hearing from us about the project we're working on or how we're enjoying our lunch or whether we're worried about that spot on the leg or we need help with that difficult conversation that's coming up. Jesus wants us to remember that God really is our father. He really does care and he really does love to give us good things and he will respond to our prayers. When we pray, he creates, he orders and sustains He disciplines and protects. He saves and reconciles. He gives us everything that we need to live as his people 
with the true righteousness of Jesus' kingdom. Now we do not receive from God because we use magic words. Neither do we nag him and wear him down until we get what we want. No, God knows what we need. And because he knows what we need, he, know, sorry, he knows us and knows what we need. He knows what is good for us. We know that God will give us what we need because he's already done what is essential in giving his son for our salvation. As Paul says, if he's given us his son, how will our heavenly father not give us everything else that we need to live for him? Maybe prayer is something that you struggle with. And if it is, you're not alone. Maybe it feels like a chore. Something you've got to do is your checklist on a daily list. Or maybe you struggle with unanswered prayer and maybe it feels like a waste of time. Or maybe, and this is the one that I struggle with, maybe it's hard to see the point if God knows everything already. But Jesus' solution here is to help you see just who you're praying to and invite you into the delight of relationship with him. The solution isn't to grit your teeth and try and pray harder. It's to lift your eyes and look at the one that we are praying to. This isn't about the door that we can't open. This is about the one who can open the door. We have the joy of coming to God, the king of the universe, and talking to him as our father. He delights to give us good things to his children. He loves to hear our prayers and he welcomes us with open arms. He's never too tired or too busy or in the wrong mood. So make the most of the opportunity by bringing him everything in prayer. Finally, in verse 12, Jesus comes to the end of this big central section of his sermon. And he builds up with a crescendo of just one line, but maybe the most famous line in the sermon, what's known as the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule brings to a close this main section of what Jesus has been teaching us from all the way back in chapter 517. If you've got your Bible open, have a quick look, flick through the pages, and you can see that he brackets this whole section talking about the law and the prophets. This whole section has been about living out the law and the prophets, the law of the Old Testament, not just, the old, not just at a surface level, not just external righteousness, but with the deep heart righteousness, the true righteousness. And Jesus has told us that he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to ditch them, but as the pinnacle of God's saving work in his people and transforming their lives so that they may live the beautiful gospel-shaped life that he's called them to. Over the last couple of chapters, Jesus has painted a picture of what life in the kingdom looks like. But Jesus hasn't covered every possibility or eventuality for what the kingdom looks like. And so he gives us this handy summary. This summary is echoed later in chapter 2 when Jesus declares the greatest commandment. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. 
This is how important that this message is. This is the second greatest commandment for us. Now, if you come to Jesus as his disciple and had your hearts transformed by him, how will we treat others? We will do good to them. We will do good things that we'd like to be done to us. It's a brilliant summary because we often have no problems knowing how we'd like to be treated. Self-interest is what drives most of our lives. But Jesus says that if we are his disciples, we'll turn that principle outward and we'll treat other people that way. It's an incredibly flexible ethical principle, isn't it? In any situation, you just have to engage your imagination and think, how would I want to be treated if this was me? Living it out will utterly transform your relationships, every part of, every part of your life. It will change how you think about church, going to church to serve rather than to be served. It will change the way you study at school or how you conduct yourself in the workplace with honesty and integrity. It will change how you treat your family, showing them grace and patience. Living this way will change how you drive, how you vote, how you spend your money, how you talk to people. There is no area of your life that will be unaffected by obeying Jesus' teaching from the heart. Jesus' challenge for you today and for the rest of the week or the year until we die or he returns, the challenge is to think in every situation, in every relationship, how would I like to be treated? And we remember how we have already been treated by Jesus. Recall the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. We had an uncountable debt to the Lord. Our life was full of sin. But Jesus has forgiven us. He has taken our sinfulness and given us righteousness. Remember the joy of your salvation. Let the gospel shape you and ask for God's help in every situation to show you how to treat others the way you would want them to be treated. And then with his help, do it. God will always give us the help to do it if we ask. What would our relationships look like if we did that? Never mean, always generous. Never harsh, always understanding. Never cruel, always kind. Of course, we'd have no hope of living like that if God hadn't done it for us in the first place with Jesus. This kind of love for others is completely beyond us apart from the grace of God, who loved us and gave his son for us on the cross. The love Jesus calls us to have for each other is his own love, working in us and through us. It's a cross-shaped love that puts the good of others in front of our own. It's one of the good things that our Heavenly Father has given us through his Holy Spirit in answer to our prayers. It's God's goodness to us that means that we can do good to those around us. It's our natural instinct to do good to ourselves, to gloss over our own sin, to ignore the plank in our own eye, and to judge others harshly and without mercy. But that's not the true kingdom righteousness that Jesus' kingdom demands. Instead, Jesus invites us to look inwards on our own sin and bring it to him in repentance, 
to receive his forgiveness. And then knowing the grace and mercy that he has shown us to extend it to others in our relationships. As we live out the values of the kingdom of heaven now, living in this world in a way that shows that we belong to the next one, Jesus calls us to be a people that treats each other with mercy and grace, being humble and treating others how they want to be treated. And even more, treating others in the way that Jesus has treated us. We can only do it with his help, but God promises that anyone who asks for help will receive it. Anyone who seeks his kingdom will find it. Anyone who knocks on the door, it will be opened. Let us God, let us ask God for help as we live this now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you've treated us in the gospel. We were sinners. We deserved condemnation and judgment. But you showed us mercy and grace. Please, we ask, transform our hearts and our lives to live out the true righteousness of the kingdom, the gospel-shaped life that Jesus is calling us to. Help us not to think of ourselves more highly than we should. Help us not to gloss over our own sin, but help us to see it clearly, to bring it before you. And knowing the grace that you've shown us, help us to show it to others. Help us to live out that golden rule, treating others as we'd have them treat us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, confident that you promise to give us what we need. Amen.